Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So Anna, I have so many questions about the line, the capital T, capital L line. I'm really curious, how did food work? Did everyone like pitch in and do a big pizza order? Uh, no, there wasn't that level of camaraderie, unfortunately. Um, I But my like BFF in the line was the guy who was in the number two spot, who was an intern for NBC. Shout out to David. Um, <laughs> uh, the kind of way that it worked is like if you needed to like go to the bathroom or go grab some food and like leave for a few minutes, I mean – the line wasn't moving, so no one really had problems with that. Um, I think the real problem was just like if you left for a really long time. Um, so at one point, I had to go uh, put my phone away because the judge ordered that there would be no electronics allowed in the courtroom. Um, and I also really needed to take a shower. So um, I got a task rabbit at that point to like sit in line <laughs> for me and hold the spot um, <laughs> while, while I went and stashed my phone and, and like took a shower and freshened up up and stuff. So, so yeah, um, that, that's how it worked. Yeah. I feel like that would be the risk. Like who is the first person willing to take that trusting move to step out of line and use the bathroom? I feel like that is like, you know, a perilous, perilous decision for that person, but they were rewarded by, you know, a small society of rules that seems to have evolved in spite of it all or outside the courtroom. It's, it's the state of nature. Do we, do we want to come together and make a, a social contract or not? No, it's not yeah, the state of nature exactly. because we don't need we don't need a, a Hobbesian sovereign. Well, we do to watch over the line. <laughs> I am. Oh, well, the but line. Anna, you said you said there was a a list. Yeah. Well, we yeah. had the list, so the list is what kept the order of the line. Um, there was a Washington Post reporter who, as soon as she came over, and there were like at this point five people in line. She was like, "Okay, we need to make a list." And so this was uh, Shana Jacobs, I believe, um, from the Washington Post, and she started making a list. And we that list, you know, that was what was law in the line. So. <laughs> The other people who were in the line, um, they had like a people who would come up and like give deliver them food. And like they had like, you know, an army of interns who would kind of just change thoughts every once in a while. Um, but I will say that my buddy, um, David from NBC, I think he actually ended up being because of the task rabbit, he ended up being there longer than than even me. I have no idea how he did it. Like I never even really saw him leave to even go to the bathroom. It was incredible. So I mean, I've got some theories, Anna, but you're not going to want to hear them. <laughs> we don't know what happened while the task rabbit was there. Look, sometimes look when the president gets indicted, you got to diaper up. It's just everyone knows yeah, that's the rule. Exactly. You got to get ready. I was like, David, he's 18 years old. And I was like, David, I really hope that they like write you a good recommendation letter because <laughs> oh, went above goodness. and beyond the call of duty. Yeah, he did.
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am very excited to be back in our virtual studio with my other two regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are thrilled to have with us the Lawfare Woman of the Hour, our hero of the moment, uh, Anna Bauer, fresh off of a extended detail waiting outside a courthouse in Miami for the arraignment of one former president, Donald J. Trump. Anna, thank you so much for giving up even more sleep to come join us here today on Rational Security. Happy to be here. You look suspiciously awake. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm so tired. <laughs> I, I'm exhausted. I have no, I mean... People, when we recorded the live stream right after the arraignment, people would uh, were texting me afterward to be like, oh, this is really interesting. And I'm like, I have no idea what I said because I'm completely delirious. Um, so you seemed you seemed very awake. <laughs> well, that that's good to know. Thank you, Quinta. So um, hopefully I'm a little bit more awake now, but I'm still very tired. So we're so you're to have us believe you did not go straight from the line to the club because I feel like that is like a, that would be a real Miami move at that point. Oh my God, no! I didn't go straight from the line to the club, but to be honest, because I went straight from the line to the arraignment to the live stream to the writing the piece. Um, There's a lot, much then, less compelling song, yeah, <laughs> than the hotel lobby bit. But that's but fine. I, Keep going. But I should have gone to the club after the piece published, but I didn't. So maybe, maybe, you know, it's Miami. You never know. Maybe there's a club open in the middle of the day before my flight. So definitely true, is. true Miami experience. And there, there will be other hearings. I think we can say that with confidence. I don't know if Fulton, Georgia or Bedminster, New Jersey have quite the same salsa scene, but my fingers crossed for you. Hey, Walt Nauda's got an arraignment hearing in two weeks time. So maybe that's my chance. There you go. Well, we are thrilled to have you here today for what we are calling in your honor the you want her in the line, you need her in the line edition of Rational Security, where we are committing two thirds of to the story that you are helping us cover and different aspects of it, because it is probably the biggest national security news we've had in a very long time in terms of national news, probably but maybe one of the biggest stories in years. And that is, of course, the federal indictment of former President Donald J. Trump. So we're going to talk about a few aspects of that and one other story that's popped up on the radar just for a little diversity and reminding ourselves that there are other things to talk about in the world. A reminder, we are all going to need a couple times over the months and weeks to come, I have no doubt. First up, <clears throat> Aileen, 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 Aileen. Aileen. <laughs> Please don't take this case just because you can. <laughs> Former, I thought that was okay. I, I was a much better singer than I am. I should have delegated this to you. <laughs> Former President Donald J. Trump was arraigned in federal court on Tuesday, the first step in a criminal trial expected to be overseen by none other than our old friend, Judge Aileen Cannon. Will the charges for unlawful retention or obstruction of justice stick? And where is the trial likely to go from here? Topic two, it's a reign in men. The indictment of former President Donald Trump in the Mar-a-Lago investigation is the first of its kind, but will it be the last? What else is the special counsel investigating, and are there other charges he might pursue against Trump or against others? And topic three, Xi Guevara. Washington is up in arms over a spy station that China is setting up in Cuba or might have been operating for years. How big a deal is this? Are the reactions high-minded or hyperbole? For our first topic, I'm going to hand it over to me to get us started. Because 
We don't need to do much introduction. I think most people listening to this podcast have been following the news. But of course, we had the indictment of former President Donald J. Trump last week on 37 charges alongside a co-conspirator, Walt Nauda, his former White House valet, now Mar-a-Lago valet. Those charges include 31 charges of unlawful retention of classified documents or an unlawful retention of documents, most of which are classified, all but one of which are appear to be marked as classified um, under the Espionage Act, a number of charges of different types of obstruction of justice, and a pair of false statement charges. This is, of course, a historical move, the first time a former president has ever been indicted in, on federal charges in federal court. And we saw uh, former President Trump arraigned not yesterday before that federal courthouse in Miami where Anna was present to witness it. Why don't we start with that arraignment and then we can go out from there. Anna, what do we learn or what did you observe kind of at the actual hearing itself that maybe gave some hints about directions this case may go, the way Trump and Nauda appear to be positioned to handle it. There are open questions about who's representing them. There are open questions about, you know, how are they going to approach these charges? So tell us a little about what you saw yesterday and what you're, we're, we should be looking at in the days to come in terms of what's coming next in this trial. Yeah, well, as, as most of our listeners will know, you know, an arraignment is a pretty a brief and usually unremarkable proceeding. Um, It just often is, you know, a matter of pleading guilty or not guilty. And then, you know, one of the big questions is what the conditions of release will be, whether there or whether the defendant will be placed in uh, custodial detention pending trial. So yesterday, I, I think that there's a few things, though, that we did learn One is that DOJ was willing to be very lenient with Trump um, in terms of his conditions of release. It it was revealed that the government recommended uh, basically that Trump and Nauda be released on their own personal recognizance, which means that, you know, they could be released uh, from custody uh, without having to pay any bail. We also learned that, um, you know, the government was willing to Wave a whole, you know, matter of uh, typical standard conditions. Um, so, for example, you know, usually defendants in the Southern District of Florida um, who are released pending trial would, you know, have conditions that include uh, getting permission from the court to go outside of the state of Florida. Um, so, things like that that just the government said, you know, we don't think that this should apply to Trump. And having, you know, seen and and watched and covered a, a lot of criminal defense cases, it, like, that's really unusual, especially in a case like this that involves national security and, you know, our, our nation's secrets. Um, that is something that is, is really unusual. Um, so I think that we learned that, you know, DOJ in that sense is, is willing to, you know, um, show some leniency. In terms of just some other smaller things, Trump's counsel issue that you raised, Scott, is, is I think, something to watch. It was very noticeable that Trump was always kind of leaning over towards Blanche, um, who is uh, Todd Blanche, the attorney from New York, who is one of Trump's attorneys in the case brought by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, but um, he's now also representing Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Also present was Chris Keiss, who is the former 
Florida Solicitor General who um, was representing Trump at least for some time in the special master litigation before Judge Cannon, but had a pretty minimal role. And it seemed very much like Trump was always speaking with Blanche. Blanche was the one who was making representations to the court. And Kais had a very minimal role to play. And Trump did not seem to make any efforts to speak with him at the, the table. Um, so I think that that's interesting and potentially a sign that that Kais will maybe have a pretty minimal role there. And then the other thing, too, that is is maybe doesn't really mean anything at all, but was really interesting. Um, and I almost kind of thought I hallucinated it, but it's since been confirmed by other media reports. Jack Smith was in the room. Um, he was sitting behind uh, the table of the DOJ prosecutors, um, and he very pointedly stared at Trump many times throughout the proceedings and and very pointedly, you know, just kind of had laser like focus on Trump as he was, you know, sitting at the, the table throughout the hearing. And then when Trump got up to leave as well. I'm not sure what that was about. Was it some kind of, um, you know, just seeing how he reacts, seeing potentially making some kind of like psychological um, profile judgment? I really don't know, but it was really interesting because I kind of suspected that if Jack Smith was there, he would kind of, you know, just look straight ahead and 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 not really um, make a big media moment out of it. But it, it seemed a little bit pointed to me. I'm, I'm getting a real uh, I'm getting a real good guy Javert vibe from from Jack Smith on this, which, which I am 100 percent OK with good guys Javert, not bad guys Javert, but the good guy version of Javert. It's as if Jean Valjean was, a, you know, a, a stealing these secrets and not loaves of bread. <laughs> it is, so it's funny that you say that because uh, there was a hilarious New York Times article that I think was unintentionally written. Um, and I'm riffing here on a point made by Tiffany Lee on Blue Sky as if it was like a weird fan fiction drama between Trump and Jack Smith. So the push like, alert like was... Like the forbidden love or something? Yes. The push alert was at his arraignment, Donald Trump was 20 feet from Jack Smith, the special <laughs> counsel. But they exchanged not a word. <laughs> which which normally you you don't have the defendant trading a lot of words with people in the well, audience. Right. Watching, but, but then it clear. goes on. Literally, the New York Times article talks about Trump's back muscles tensing visibly under his suit jacket, which I would just like to say, putting on my editor hat, that sentence would be so much less weird if you just deleted the word muscles. Like Trump's, adding muscles Trump's makes it so much weird. Musculature, like legitimately. Yeah. Yes, I was. I saw that line, Quinta, and like I was so confused because I had a direct view of Trump's back and <laughs> I did not fact see. checking. Fact checking from Anna. How, how is how is President Trump's physique these days, Anna? Please, the the the, the listeners are dying to know. Um, let's just say I didn't see any back muscles, you know, flexing through <laughs> through his navy blue suit. <laughs> I mean, the suit jacket would have to be would have to be pretty tight. I, look, I will just say, during the Mueller investigation, Robert Mueller somewhat inexplicably became like a weird sex symbol. And I think uh, we're probably, hmm. unfortunately, now <laughs> in certain for, circles, dude. <laughs> there, there was a no, 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 no. I, oh my God, there were Vogue articles. There were Vogue articles. I will send you the articles. I am not making this up. I wrote a trend piece about this. Like it happened. And we are absolutely headed 
for that again. No, with Quinta, I've already seen you know. it. It's like people people have already talked about how hot Jack Smith is. I mean, but, but look, Jack Smith. I mean, look, I, I Bob Mueller is an American hero, but like, let's be real, Jack Smith is legitimately kind of dreamy. Like, you don't even have to go that far. I mean, he's, you know, he's a handsome let's, guy. Uh, we don't know how you feel about wizards, Alan. We remember. <laughs> This is, all, this is all part of Alan's wizard fetishizing, <laughs> continuing. But he wasn't wearing the robes. I think I think I am in agreement with you, Alan. I will say. Thank you. Let me let me bring this conversation back to something a little more substantive. <laughs> um, so this is a new environment for Trump. It's an environment we haven't seen Trump in before in a trial environment, except in his New York arraignment during separate charges there, and it's one we're going to see him in multiple times in the years to come. I think we are fully expecting another indictment in in Georgia. It may not come, but that's where all the tea leaves seem to be pointing. Um, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, there might be other indictments arising for the special counsel's work. Quinta, you wrote this week about how Trump and his usual approach to shaping narrative engages with a court atmosphere and is likely to continue to be. You know, both arraignments, he was fairly sedate. And then as soon as he steps out, he gives a very blustery speech in an event for a major fundraising event for him with, I think, $1,000 tickets, uh, the event last night that he spoke at, where he very much, frankly, crosses, if not at least treads up to and if not crosses the lines of propriety that would normally be allowed for a criminal defendant in a lot of other circumstances in terms of insulting the prosecutor, leveling vague threats against them and their family members in some cases. Tell us how you think Trump is going to fare in this court environment, Quinta? Like, you know, what what was your thesis in this Atlantic piece I saw you wrote on this uh, yesterday about what the challenges it's going to pose, pose for him and how he usually engages these sorts of of challenges? Yeah. So for the record listeners, Scott and I did, I did not plan this with Scott and he just dropped this on me right now. So this wasn't, I did not know that this log rolling would happen, but I'm glad that you liked the article. Um, yeah. Piece. So look, I think that what we have seen throughout Trump's presidency and post-presidency again and again is that he, for all that he loves to sue people, his rhetorical style is really poorly suited to the courtroom. And what I mean by that is that he is someone who lies, tells stories, says whatever is convenient at the time. And a courtroom is an environment where what you can say and when you can say it and the kinds of arguments that you can make are very heavily regulated um, by a judge who has the power to, say, slap your lawyer with an enormous fine or put their bar license into question if they lie. And a recent example, for example, we we saw um, in the 2020 election litigation where Trump would go out there, you know, and make crazy statements about how the election had been stolen. His lawyers would walk into courtrooms and most of the time, we're not able to make those same arguments in court because they weren't true. And those lawyers who did try to make those arguments anyway um, are now have been facing bar investigations. Um, and so in that respect, I think that, you know, obviously, as you said, the criminal courtroom is a new space for Trump, a federal criminal courtroom. And it's not a particularly hospitable space for his sort of mode of rhetorical engagement. That, I think, means that it's it's sort of a very powerful sphere for accountability, for, for you know, insisting that words mean what they say, that Trump really did what he's accused of having been done 
rather than sort of allowing him to just say, you know, I didn't do it. I didn't take it. I'm innocent. Everybody takes documents, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, The twist, I think, and the thing that's important to keep in mind is that we have this kind of interesting dynamic where at the same time as the courts to many Trump opponents have become this kind of space of truth um, and a way to kind of cut through lies um, in the Trump era and the post-Trump era, of course, at the same time, the courts have been facing a massive crisis of public legitimacy in large part because of the massive number of conservative judges and justices appointed by Trump uh, during his term, one of whom, of course, is Judge Eileen Cannon. Um, And so I think that, you know, Cannon's role in this kind of complicates that story and maybe underlines the extent to which relying on the courts as a way to kind of reach some sort of objective uh, rule-bound truth is necessarily limited in what it can do. I mean, I I don't want to, you know, uh, say that Canada is necessarily going to make make a hash of the whole thing. Maybe she's, you know, had her road to Damascus moment and everything will be fine. But it does sort of force us to ask the question. So I have not read Quintus' piece, though I certainly will because it sounds very interesting. Just to kind of bring the, these observations maybe just a little bit more down to sort of the concrete political level. You know, I think another interesting question that arises from this point that Quint is absolutely right to make that you know Trump's style of rhetoric and therefore his style of politicking is sort of inconsistent in many ways with how federal trials work. This raises the question of what the practical impacts of this ongoing trial will be on his campaign. You know, I, I you know when I when I've been talking to reporters about this recently, you know, the first question is, oh, can Trump? You know, especially if they're if they're you know foreign reporters who are unfamiliar with the U.S. system, the question is. Oh, can you know, can Trump run for president if he's under indictment or if he's convicted? And the answer is an unequivocal: he absolutely can. There's no bar to running for president. He can do what you know Eugene Debs did in the 1910s and run from prison if he wants to. But there is a, a set of interesting practical potential limitations, which which is that when you're under indictment, <laughs> it's it's usually not a good legal strategy. And sometimes it is explicitly prohibited by the judge. And this is another area in which we'll have to see what Judge Cannon says. You're usually not allowed to just say random stuff about your trial. You certainly don't want to lie about your trial or make all sorts of representations that can then be used to impeach you in court. I mean, you know, I'm hardly an experienced prosecutor, but like, you know, even I understand that this gets complicated quickly. And so, you know, we'll have to see whether as a a practical matter, uh, this poses problems for Trump. Because of course, you know, another candidate might decide that, well, if I'm under indictment, I should not talk about this at all because, you know, I want to talk about the issues or whatever. But of course, for Trump, there are no issues. There's only Trump, right? Trump and the issues are completely coterminous. It's like one, you know, what is the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail of US politics. And so the only thing he can talk about is, of course, himself and the attack from by, you know, the woke left on him or whatever he's going to say. And so, you know, I think this might be a, a really profound way in which, even though again, this has no legal effect on his campaign, you know, especially given as Anna pointed out, um, DOJ has, I think, quite wisely decided not to try to impose any sorts of you know travel restrictions on Trump because you know what's the point? Um, it might have some really, really profound practical consequences on his ability to campaign in the way that is most useful for Trump. Well, let's talk a little bit about the substance of these charges and what we get out of them or what we know about them and what what we see coming down the pike for them. Uh, Like I mentioned, there are three categories. We have unlawful retention of classified documents. We have obstruction for justice. And then we have false statement sorts of charges. 
Alan, actually, let me just start with you as our former Justice Department uh, person who has thought about this from a prosecutor's perspective more more than we have, at least, uh, if not at great, at great length. You know, what should we be making of these charges? How big a legal challenge are them? And what are the big barriers that we're going to see to the prosecutors making their cases? You know, what is what is the probability, frankly, of conviction that we have we can tell from the indictment as we have the facts laid out by the prosecutors? Sure. So the the first point to make, and this is a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true and I think important to reflect upon, which is that, you know, as as always, it's not the crime, or at least it's not all it's not just the crime, it is as usual also the cover up. And so, you know, it, it is it is notable that not only are you have you know, you have very strong substantive allegations regarding the classified documents, you have just such a wealth of evidence regarding obstruction and false statements and conspiracy for obstruction and, and sort of all of that. And again, it just it just shows how much trouble you know, Trump, and to be honest, not just Trump, but so many people make after they've committed a crime in trying to to cover it up, which is something that, you know, DOJ will happily nail you for. Uh, you know, the, the other thing to say is, and again, it's, you know, important, you know, even with someone like Trump to, to note that allegations are just that, and he is presumed innocent until his guilt is established by a unanimous jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, all that being said, um, the evidence, at least to my mind, is pretty close to overwhelming, I mean, what what is there to say at this point? Part of it is because so much of it has already been disclosed through reporting. Part of it is also because, obviously, as part of the investigation, the special counsel has gotten access to uh, recordings of Trump admitting that he had this classified information and he hadn't declassified it and he knew it was classified and he was showing it to people. You know, uh, interviews with witnesses, including you know Trump's lawyers, and man, if you, whenever whenever you can get the you know when, whenever someone can hang the crime fraud exception to attorney client privilege over your head, you are in trouble um, because when stuff comes out of your lawyer's mouth, that's really bad for you. You know, on and on and on. So you know, I've been I've been asked you know sometimes the last couple of days, you know, is this the strongest? Is this the case that presents Trump with the most danger? Is this the strongest case against Trump? And you know, I think in terms of the seriousness of the offense, no, right? I think the Georgia case is more serious. I think obviously if he's, you know, indicted for inciting an insurrection against the Capitol, which I hope he is indicted for, that's a more serious case. But in terms of the combination of seriousness and probability of success, I think there's no question that this is his most dangerous case, right? Because the allegations are quite serious, like substantively, it's a big deal. He's not going to get a you know twenty year maximum mandatory, or he's not going to get a twenty year maximum sentence. But you know the sentencing guidelines are several years, and even if that's knocked down to whatever house arrest or probation, it's it's you know he's he's under serious legal jeopardy here, and the facts are just so remarkably clear, um, and there's so much evidence for it. Uh, now again. Cases can fall apart at any moment for any reason, right? You know, DOJ has walked into courtrooms with the most, most, most buttoned up of cases, and it just goes to hell. Um, and you never know what will happen. Um, so we always have to keep that possibility in mind. And that's especially true uh, where, you know, we can talk about this, I'm sure, more today. You have a judge who, at least in the past, has made such a hash of Trump-related investigations, you know, again, I'm I'm with Quinta. I, I want to give the benefit of the doubt, and I want to hope that she has had her, uh, you know, come to come to Jesus moment uh, with with respect to this. Um, it's certainly possible that that she has. It's also possible that she's decided to go all in on the other side. We'll have to see. But there are certainly ways in which she can muck up the prosecution, um, especially with respect to the issue of classified information and whether she gives DOJ the kind of appropriate leeway to bring 
evidence regarding classified documents into court without requiring DOJ to, you know, spill nuclear nuclear secrets. And, and, and more generally, whether she uh, uh, is expeditious in these rulings, so this does not drag out for years and years and years. So well, just one point on the seriousness, though, I don't think any of these charges act. I think there aren't any of the charges we're expecting to, against Trump or the New York charges actually carry any stiffer penalties than these. I think these actually max out the maximum penalties. There's a little difference about what you actually get under the guidelines. But I actually think these are the most, in terms of legal penalty, the outer range of possibility. I actually think these are just as serious as any charge we're expecting to come, if not more serious. I, I think that I think that's right. It's twenty. But, but I, it's up to twenty years uh, is the guideline. I, I, yeah, I think that's right. And and I mean, I think the the most serious charge that would be brought with respect to January sixth on the federal level is incitement to insurrection, which I think also has a twenty year maximum. Look, I, I haven't done the sentencing guidelines calculations, um, but I, I just I just think that there is a kind of a a vibe, which is that classified information stuff is bad. But if he is indicted and prosecuted both legally and in the court of public opinion for inciting an attack on the Capitol, that is just kind of generally more serious. The point is just that's going to be harder to get a conviction on than these very straightforward document lying charges. I will say I it will be quite funny if they end up prosecuting him for taking classified documents, but not for inciting an insurrection, just because of uh, what it says about where the federal government's priorities are. Well, so Alan raised this question about Aileen Cannon. Let me come back to you on that, Annex. I know you spent a lot of time uh, thinking about Aileen Cannon, watching Aileen Cannon work around the magistrate judge proceedings, which which you uh, were able to observe parts of as well. You know, tell us a little bit about what you're expecting. I mean, the areas where we know there are going to be pretrial decisions are SEPA, although SEPA has interlocutory appeal provisions to the 11th Circuit, so maybe a little less discretion there. Attorney-client privilege, we actually haven't seen this court rule on the admissibility of attorney-client privilege information under the crime fraud exception before the jury. And then there's a typical array of pretrial issues, which probably are going to be extra weird this time, I guess, because it's a weird defendant in a weird context. You know, do you have a sense about what you expect from Judge Kahn or what we might expect uh, and maybe how prosecutors appear to be ready to approach or engage uh, with Judge Cannon so far? I know it's early, so maybe not, but, but what would you expect from how they've approached other aspects of this case? Right. So, I mean, I will say that, you know, Judge Cannon, I think one thing we do know about her is that she doesn't have a whole lot of experience and expertise in uh, national security law and and the law around classified documents. So I think that, you know, uh, potentially, you know, there will be a learning curve there. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I certainly think that if uh, what we saw in the special master litigation continues, then, you know, that that learning curve might be a quite steep one. Um, and, and one that, you know, will will not benefit the, the Justice Department. Is it a learning curve if it steeps downwards? Can you have a downward <laughs> yeah. steeping learning curve? Yeah, I, I don't know. But but um, I, I will say in terms of some of the other pretrial motions that will go on um, beyond that, um, something that I I suspect we might see is if Judge Cannon, you know, has issues where she, she has to make findings of fact that, um, you know, could go one way or the other. Based on what I saw in the special master litigation and, and her kind of demeanor towards some of the representations that Trump's team was making during that litigation, um, it seems like she's very willing to kind of, you know, find in favor of whatever, you know, Trump's team is saying it, it happened as opposed to 
what the Justice Department um, is representing. Um, and that's a huge deal at the district court level because, you know, it's 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 very much the case that courts of appeal have a very kind of deferential um, view towards what findings of fact are made by the district court judge. Um, so I think that that's something to watch for, although I, I certainly do take the point that, you know, we we don't know yet what to what extent the 11th Circuit's uh, rebuke of Judge Cannon um, might have had some kind of impact on on her um, and kind of tempered some of her inclinations to to find in Trump's favor. And and we also, you know, there's other things um, as well, including as I believe it was Marcy Wheeler of Empty Wheel who pointed this out that I don't think that Judge Cannon during the special master litigation had read the affidavit uh, and search warrant that uh, Magistrate Judge Reinhardt um, had issued for the the search at Mar-a-Lago back in August. Can I ask a question about that, actually? Yeah. How mm-hmm. is that possible? I mean, it's not like she needed special access to it. It was in the public domain. Yeah, I, I am not I'm not sure. I need to go back and look at the filings about this. Um, I, but I think that there was no need for her to read it to to make is that right in terms of inter, to make the decision on the special special master litigation they did make some representations about you know the warrant potentially being invalid and that kind of thing um but she never to my memory it was like she kind of hinted at there might be some of those fourth amendment concerns but never really um made any representations in terms of you know, what uh, the the warrant itself said, it was kind of just based on what trustee and, and Trump's team claimed. And I think at one point they asked her to read it to my memory or, or they asked her, they asked if they could submit something with the warrant um, and she declined to, to take it into consideration. That's like a very like fuzzy memory though that I, I need to go back and look at the filing. So someone check me if I'm wrong on that. I, I will say my recollection is neither the search warrant and particularly the underlying affidavit, actually, they were not public until the special yeah. magistrate litigation started. I think that's uh, so right. So, but it's still strange that she would not have wanted to see them before making this decision. Very, very fair criti- critique there, I think. So, Anna, what, what are you looking for as the person who's following the day-to-day trial most closely over the next few months? What should we be looking for in terms of next steps? And then the big question for everybody... Do we have a sense about when a trial is actually going to happen? Or is that just too far, too contingent on too many other intermediary decisions to really know at this point? Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, right now, uh, you know, this was before Judge Goodman at the arraignment. Um, and Judge Goodman made a, made a point of saying, you know, this is I'm just a temporary stand in. Um, th- this is Judge Cannon's case. And and so he really didn't set an immediate next step other than um, setting the arraignment hearing for Nalta who was not arraigned yet because his counsel, Stanley Woodward, needed to get local counsel to appear um, just under the local rules that that was a requirement. Um, And so Nalta's arraignment was continued for another two weeks. So that will happen as an immediate next step. Beyond that, we don't have any kind of immediate uh, scheduling orders. There there will be some routine um, 
discovery um, that will that will happen. Um, there there will be the SEPA issues that arise, which I think that probably Scott, you can talk more intelligently about the SEPA issues than I can. And then you know you'll move into pretrial motions, whether that's motions to suppress or you know other other motions. And then you move into the trial phase, which I think will be very far off in the distance. So, you know, I I don't know how much we can say right now about when exactly things will start to happen. I will mention that one other thing we'll be looking for is this witness list that the government was uh, asked to produce um, related to Trump and Nalta's conditions of release. The judge said that, you know, the government should come up with this list of potential fact witnesses. And and that list would be the list of people who Trump and Nalta are not allowed to um, speak to about the case. They can, you know, speak to them. So it's not just like a uh, uh, absolute no contact order, um, but they they can't speak about the case unless it's through counsel. So whether or not that will be made public is unclear. Um, it seems to me that probably it'll be redacted or or sealed, just because you know there's a lot of witnesses that uh, they they might not want to uh, make public, whether because of safety concerns or something else. So I think that that kind of sums up what we're looking for next. Uh, does anyone have anything to add to that? No, I think that I think that just about covers it. We're going to send you back to Miami, Anna. Yeah, for better or for worse. <laughs> but this time we'll send you with a, a list of restaurants to hit as well. So that you have a yeah, good time. and and um, maybe I'll finally hit the clubs next time. There you go. After after the line. Just make sure you lock all your classified documents in the bathroom for safekeeping. <laughs> or put them on the club stage. I, yeah, I was going to say, I prefer to keep them in my ballroom, Quinta. So <laughs> Yeah, you can call them DJSCI or something. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So kind of moving to the back half of our one-two doubleheader topic, um, you know, we've been focused, obviously, rightly so, on the uh, the Florida part of this investigation and indictment. But of course, this conduct happened not just in Florida, but this all so happened in D.C., where the documents were removed from. It also happened in New Jersey, where some of the documents were found at Trump's uh, Bedminster uh, golf course. To, you know, thank you, Quinta, for your the great state of New Jersey as always. So l- let me ask you, Scott. You you wrote a piece, uh, a great piece, on the site earlier this week. Uh, shoes yet to drop in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. Um, so t- talk us through talk us through those shoes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, this is kind of an interesting reading between the lines exercise, and it's highly speculative. speculative so we all need to be a, a little conservative in really how we frame this in terms of the certainty with which any of these things are coming. But I think it's certainly true that the indictment points to at least two separate areas in different jurisdictions where the prosecutors very clearly think Donald Trump and potentially those around him were involved in activity that certainly seems criminal, potentially, uh, certainly wrongful and potentially criminal. The one area that opens it opens the indictment with is a description of how Donald Trump very deliberately and consciously packed classified documents in these boxes he collected over the course of his presidency to squirrel them away and to eventually take them home with him. And that he is the person who is personally involved. It says that verbatim, um, personally involved with directing these do- documents that he had collected, knowing they were classified, to transfer them to his facility at Mar-a-Lago. That removal of classified documents from the White House is, itself could be criminal. It intersects with a lot of weird questions about presidential authority over classified documents that may complicate things, but I don't think are prohibitive necessarily. So you you could see some set of charges about removal of classified documents there, in addition to the unlawful retention that relates to after Trump became aware he had them and government asked for them back. The second sort of category you have uh, is the a number of actions around Bedminster. Um, this is where Trump's other golf club is, where twice in his personal office there, we know he uh, one time on an audio recording created by his staff, he shared classified documents with third parties not authorized to see them. A representative of his political action committee, a bunch of people working on Mark Meadows' biography, not people with clear need to know for national security information, and did so pretty willy-nilly, even as he was acknowledging, oh, this is classified. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't declassify things anymore, and I really shouldn't be showing you this. Try not to get too close. It's a crazy, crazy set of behavior, Um, the sort of thing that's so brazen and wanton that it's hard to imagine the Justice Department would not seriously think about criminal charges in this sort of case. And it doesn't end there, because when he is sharing, uh, Donald Trump shared this one document in the audio recording we have with Mark Meadows' biographers, he says, I have a big stack of documents like these. And then later we learn that a year later, the same day where the uh, Justice Department visited Mar-a-Lago to collect the documents Trump's lawyer had collected for bringing to to hand back over collected from the documents that Trump had allowed him to search, which was a subset of the overall documents. Trump said, oh, I'm a complete open book on these documents things. At the same time, he we knew, according to, just to the prosecutors, Nauta and Trump were directing a number of boxes to be packed on his personal plane and flowed north for the summer along with his family, which is as far as it doesn't say this in the uh, in the indictment, but we know from other contacts, it's to Bedminster. So there's very good reason to think there's a lot of documents Trump has at Bedminster. We know the FBI subpoenaed one. It subpoenaed at least one. Uh, and that's the one in relation to this incident with Mark Meadows' biographers. And Trump and his attorneys came back and said, we can't find this now. That itself is a real problem because Trump clearly had it. He's describing this document. They can probably get people to identify it, who he showed it to by bringing forward the government copy, which appears to be one of the 31 documents introduced in this case, although we don't know for sure, but certainly one, the description of one matches this document. If they can get somebody to identify it, then they have reason to believe that Trump is no longer complying with the subpoena, or maybe he destroyed the document, which is its own form of obstruction of justice and raises its own set of criminal charges. There's all sorts of liability that can fly out of, out of Bedminster. And, I, and that's one case where, unlike the D.C. case, I would be genu- genuinely surprised if we don't see further law enforcement action there, including prosecutorial decisions. Um, although, you know, it sounds like they're still investigating them. And the third area, I would say, is, is Mar-a-Lago itself. 
the indictment's pretty clear. Like Nauda and Trump did not conspire amongst just themselves. They conspired with other people. The obvious person is somebody identified as Trump employee too, who appears to be cooperating, I would guess. Um, there's some media reports to, to a person meeting this description, testifying. We know texts between Trump employee two and Nauta are introduced into evidence and are in, in the indictment. Uh, and so presumably Trump employee two probably provided them. But there's a lot of other people who are involved in this conspiracy too. One of Trump's family members is identifying the indictment as knowing these boxes were being reviewed by Trump and loaded onto the plane. May not have known there's classified documents there, but had some knowledge of, of these documents. And then the bigger issue, I think, is there's two Trump lawyers involved here. Uh, M. Evan Corcoran, um, whose uh, notes about his representation of Trump were introduced under the crime fraud exception and are some of the most compelling testimony here. And Christina Bob, who signed the false certification um, that Trump provided to the FBI in June 2022. Both of them, the indictment doesn't allege that they knew the certification was false, but it's almost hard to believe. There, there's a reason to think they might have, because the indictment says, oh, we searched all the documents we brought back from the White House, whereas it really looks like you know Corcoran spent two and a half hours, according to the indictment, looking through 30 boxes and doesn't appear to have critically asked, are these all the documents or not, as he asserted in the certification. And Christina Bob had no personal knowledge that what she was certifying was true. Both of these I could see being parts of a conspiracy eventually. You know, it raises a lot of tricky legal issues there. And I think it would require more facts than we have. I don't think we should jump to any conclusions. But it certainly is another area we may see additional activities. And of course, this is just part of the special counsel's ambit, still investigating January 6th, still investigating not just January 6th, the interference with 2020 election transfer, but also the financial side of things, a bunch of fraud allegations regarding fundraising around the events of January 6th, also in the special counsel's ambit. We know from media reports are actively investigating it. So all that is just to argue, uh, as I argue in this piece, I don't think this is the last indictment we're going to see from the special counsel's office in relation to this investigation, um, and certainly not overall in relation to all the threads that he's pursuing. It, it is just, I, I mean, it is just crazy to me. And, and I think just a, as we go through these trials and we just see Trump's just like, unbelievable lack of impulse control that this person for four years had access to the nuclear button. I just like that to me is somehow the big takeaway. Like that's what this case is really about, right? Like it's, you know, obviously it's about documents and lines. It's about this case, but like to me, what it fundamentally is about is that for four years, like this person had access to the nuclear codes and was the commander in chief. And that just, I, I, I cannot get over that fact. I, I will just call out, um, uh, and I'm, we're gonna, we're gonna lose our PG rating for the episode, but I think it's worth it. Um, uh, Matt Iglesias, uh, wrote a good Substack earlier this week, uh, entitled The Orange Man is Bad. And the first sentence of which is, uh, the central political fact of our era is that Donald Trump is a total piece of shit and scumbag, which I think is, first of all, a great first sentence. And also is just, man, it's just like, it's just not that complicated, even if it's, remarkable to think about. That's actually is kind of a tricky, interesting narrative, a point that I think this case, as we already see in the Mar-a-Lago context and other aspects of it as a comfort are, are going to play into kind of the public imagination, right? And we're already seeing threads of this beginning to get pulled at, even as we're seeing a lot of Republicans coming to Trump's defense. We've seen Nikki Haley and Tim Scott both begin to attract, walk this weird line of kind of dual attack saying, we don't like DOJ is doing this. It's too aggressive. Uh, it raises dem democracy concerns. But also, it looks like Trump acted really irresponsibly here. I think you're going to see that parallel line of attack become more common because the facts here are really problematic for Trump. And they open up a lot of avenues for attack for his political opponents um, and for others in kind of like the Republican Party who may not be excited about him as a 2024 candidate and want to find ways to undermine his appeal. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the January 
six investigation, I think there's been some interesting signs that things are moving forward again after a period of dormancy, perhaps as the special counsel's office focused on what was happening at, at Mar-a-Lago. Um, so of course we, we do know that a few months ago, uh, Mike Pence testified before the grand jury. We just got some opinions from the chief judge of the district court in DC unsealed about what topics he could testify on. We also know that last week, Steve Bannon was subpoenaed by a grand jury uh, in D.C. in connection with that investigation. There was some reporting from NBC that that uh, just yesterday, the same day as Trump's arraignment, the Republican Party chair in Nevada, who was closely involved in the fake electors movement in that state, uh, was at the Prettyman Courthouse in D.C., the federal courthouse. So he wouldn't tell uh, the reporters what he was doing there, unsurprisingly. But I think that is an interesting sign. And then there is also uh, some indication that the special counsel is, for whatever reason, has been interviewing people about the firing of Chris Krebs, the head of CISA, the Cybersecurity Information Security Agency, who listeners might recall Trump fired in uh, what I think is known technically as a fit of peak after uh, Krebs tweeted in fall 2020 that the election had been secure and that there hadn't been fraud. So all of those things suggest that this investigation is certainly moving forward. I will confess, I think that the, the Nevada prong makes sense with what we know about the fake electors portion of the investigation. Steve Bannon, you could see that feeding into a number of prongs. I confess I'm kind of confused about why Smith would suddenly be interested in Chris Krebs's firing. I mean, it's certain like it was it was bad, but it's not super obvious to me how it connects to any of the different kind of threads of the investigation, which may just suggest that, you know, as is often the case, there's a lot we don't know, right? I think a metaphor that I ended up or a simile that I ended up leaning on a lot when during the Mueller investigation was that, you know, the investigation is a locked room and we're looking through the keyhole, right? And there's just a lot that is out of our range of vision. So who knows what may happen? The Krebs bit is really interesting. You know, so many threads of the January 6th investigation are going to come down to claims of fraud, meaning knowledge and intent and mens rea. And that is so clearly seems to be a major point of investigation of all sorts of different threads, whether it's subpoenaing you know Trump organization business records from 2017 through 2020, right? Which we know the special counsel's office did interviewing Mark Meadows. This Chris Krebs angle, a big focus seems to be who, what Trump knew and believed versus what you know we might people may generously assume he believed if they were trying to find a basis of saying, well, he's just this kind of instinctual animal. And that's always the hard part with Trump. I mean, in the impeachments, we know it's what he knew underneath everything. That was always an issue that's hard to penetrate because you had executive privilege and other barriers that usually protect inquiry into the people who have that sort of information and testimony about what a president knows and decides. And those are still going to be in play here, but being a former president and being the focus of such a long, sustained criminal investigation, and frankly, coming on the backs of a very thorough congressional investigation means I think you're getting a lot closer to it here. I'll also say one other thing we should flag is that not all these things will necessarily come from the special counsel's office. Special counsel's office, as they develop leads and more information into these different threads, very well may spin them back to main justice and say, well, there isn't a close enough nexus to our mandate 
which is limited at special counsel's office, maybe they think the investigation is just going to take more resources or longer than they can commit to it. Or maybe they decide for other reasons that, you know, that we want to focus on these other threats. We're going to spin these back to Maine Justice or U.S. Attorney's Office. And so we might see investigation come out of that. I suspect that's what's going to happen with some of these January 6th threads that can be broken off. So example, the green team threat, as we call it, in reference to the January 6th committee report about uh, fundraising fraud doesn't really look like it clearly involves Trump himself, at least according to the January 6th annex, involves a lot, a lot of other people who worked in the Trump campaign. And so you could see that getting spun off to say, well, this is really separate from our mandate and is something a U.S. attorney's office or another part of DOJ could handle. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see that happening down the road as well. And I don't know when exactly we would get notice of that. I suspect not until we see other elements of DOJ begin to take investigatory steps. Yeah. And I I would just say, Scott, I think you're right about the Chris Krebs element being probably about what Trump knew. It kind of reminds me of the interest that, you know, the January 6th committee and Fulton County prosecutors. And um, I believe uh, I, I think that this was also an element of the special counsel's January 6th investigation. But the interest in um, the firing of B.J. Pack, who was, um, you know, one of the AUSAs in the Northern District of Georgia, um, who had been, you know, investigating some claims of fraud and and that aspect of, I believe, the Fulton County District Attorney's investigation goes to what Trump was being told and what he knew, um, because, you know, there's a lot that we know from transcripts from relevant people who were involved in that. It, it just, you know, kind of reveals what Trump knew and, and what he was being told. So I certainly would agree with you that that likely seems to be what the Chris Krebs uh, interest is related to. So there is one last investigatory thread here that we know is about to come to a head and that you've been following really closely, Anna. Can you give us, a, and that, of course, is Fulton County in Georgia. We've already referenced a few times. Can you give us a little bit of sense about what your current sense of what we should be expecting in August when we finally get uh, a final decision, or it sounds like we're going to finally get a decision out of Fulton County, um, and including any charges that might be brought and, and what you're expecting there? Sure. So uh, as background, the Fulton County District Attorney, as most listeners will recall, has strongly hinted that uh, she will make charging decisions sometime between the end of July and the middle of August. Um, You know, there was this uh, big newsy story about how she sent security teams in Atlanta a letter noting that, you know, her investigative team would uh, only be the only people in her office in person on certain days uh, within July and August. And those days are days that the grand jury meets. Um, so we have some inclination to be- or some reason to believe that the Fulton County District Attorney will pursue some charges in its ongoing investigation. I think that all signs point to RICO. Um And I will say for those listeners who have experience in the federal system where uh, it's, you know, usually not RICO and and RICO is is usually not a a tool that prosecutors use, except in certain types of cases in the federal system. But Georgia has a much uh, broader RICO state statute. And it also is just something that prosecutors in Georgia tend to use more frequently, even for cases that seem like it they probably shouldn't be charged under the RICO statute. So for example, there was a case that involved, you know, a, a ring of 
teachers who were kind of coordinating to have their students cheat on exams in, in public high schools in Atlanta in 2013. You know, that was a RICO case and, and many of those teachers were convicted. But there's also other examples as well that involve, you know, court clerks who kind of uh, misuse um, the the uh, filing and payment system. Um, and, and so kind of things like that, that just seem like they don't really fit um, with the typical, you know, white collar organized crime kind of framework that we usually think of with, when we think of RICO. Um, so I don't think it would be too far outside of the norm um, to apply it to Trump's conduct when it comes to overturning the 2020 election. And, you know, we've had for a very long time a sense that Fonnie Willis is looking at RICO just from some of the language they've used in the filings. Um, It seems like it's been a very broad investigation that's looking at a number of different um, elements. Some of the conduct that they've looked at doesn't happen in Fulton County, it happens in other counties in Georgia or or out of state, um, and they typically would not have venue to look at those to look at that conduct unless they were using some kind of RICO or conspiracy uh, theory of the prosecution. So I, I certainly do think that I'm looking for that um, in terms of what the predicate acts could be. I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure yet because they have looked at a number of things. Um, but as you all know, you know, it's the fake electors. There's, you know, potential false uh, swearings or false statements. You know, there's the breach in Coffee County, Georgia of, of voting equipment. Um, so those are just a few of the, the things that uh, they've been looking at. So that's that's what we're looking for. Um, I w- oh right, and I will note that we did have some reporting yesterday. Uh, I can't rem- I can't recall which outlet first reported it, but it kind of flew under the radar, which is that um, the Fulton County Prosecutor's Office sent down um, a security team to Miami to kind of scout out what was going on with the security situation down here. Um, so that very much uh, seems to signal again and, and just kind of reconfirm what we already have reason to believe, which is that Fonnie Willis has her sights set on potentially charging Trump. Um, so I think that that kind of sums up what's going on in Fulton County. But I'm certainly looking forward to continue to report on whatever develops there in July and August. All right. Well, thank you. That is, that we certainly have a lot of threads to continue to follow this story in the year to come. But that is not the only topic we have to discuss today on rational security. Quinta, do you want to tee us up for our final topic? Yeah. So let's take a a quick sail uh, about a hundred miles south uh, of of Florida, uh, where we've spent so much of this episode, and talk about what is apparently a. Uh, a pre-existing Chinese uh, intelligence uh, facility on the island of Cuba to eavesdrop on U.S. communications. Uh, So the Wall Street Journal reported uh, last week, I believe, that uh, Cuba and China had reached a deal to uh, have China establish a listening facility uh, on the island. The New York Times then reported that, in fact, the listening facility already existed um, and had been a problem for the U.S. government since uh, the Trump administration, in fact. 
obviously the the news of this precipitated an uh, enormous amount of condemnation um, in in Congress and and elsewhere. Um, and I think there's now this kind of question of you know what happens now. I will note that I think both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal article uh, had helpful little paragraphs saying, you know, this isn't the first time that a major U.S. adversary has uh, attempted to station something in Cuba. Remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I will say I personally did not no, find no one remembers hugely the Cuban Missile reassuring. Crisis. Yeah. Uh, so, Scott, as our as our foreign policy head. First off, I mean, just what do you make of this and how is the U.S. going to respond? How can the U.S. respond? So I, I want to turn to that, but I also think there's two material facts in context here that we need to uh, should bear in mind about this story as it kind of manifests. One of those things is that this story came out a few days after reports that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was planning to visit China. We now know that that trip is set to take place this week. I don't think that's a coincidence. Personally, uh, you know, I think a story like this, particularly because it appears to be largely information that's been known to the intelligence community, there's a new element of it in that there's a secret agreement, but it's not clear it materially changes the nature of the activity going on here. Suggests that there may have been this may have been a motivated leak, uh, a leak intended to shape narrative around something. And China is one of those topics which is very politically charged. And the second relevant fact, and I feel bad saying this because I don't want to demean the hard work of the reporters at all who are excellent, um, but is that this story was le- was broken by the Wall Street Journal. I do think that's indicative uh, because, frankly, a lot of certain types of leaks, I think often particularly from Republicans in Congress, tend to go to the journal first. Uh, if you disagree with me, Quinta, tell me if you think that's right. Not right, but that's been my kind of anecdotal I will say my impression, obviously, the journal's editorial page is extremely and increasingly far right, but... Uh, reporters insist on telling you, and they're they're correct to insist that there is a firewall, um, and the news side does not have a good relationship with the editorial side, precisely because of that. So that hadn't been my impression, but I, maybe I'm just not looking at the right stories. But 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 Scott, I, I feel like I, I feel like you're being coy. What what is the implication here that like someone wants to screw up this China trip and is oh leaking? yeah exactly yeah. I'm not being clear about this. I, I think this is a story that was is being pushed out in substantial part is an effort to kind of put additional pressure on the Biden administration around China issues. You know, that doesn't mean it's not a serious issue. Like, of course, you're going to be worried about China spying on the United States. But, uh, and Max Boot actually had a a reasonably good column on this at the Washington Post, kind of putting in more stark terms, you know, making the point that like, this is actually very similar to activities the United States does all the time. And defense is completely legitimate. You know, we fly surveillance planes very transparently at this point, because so many cases have occurred of tension over them that that have been reported, you know, very close to Chinese territory, in part, presumably to intercept electronic communications. Um, and this is just a geographically based version of that. But it's not clear there's any reason that, you know, Cuba is prohibited from doing this by international law, by any other legal system. It may be bad. It's something we don't want Cuba to do. And I think it's a fair criticism to say, well, this is what happens when we deep six our relationship with Cuba, which is something um, the Trump administration did. And that's very much the line the Biden administration is trying to push back with saying this is a problem that arises from the Trump administration's handling of this. 
uh, and its relationship with Cuba. But this is a story that has a lot of political narrative on both sides of it. And it's something that I think is is to substantial extent getting kind of overheated for that reason and is going to get more overheated. You know, is this the sort of thing, a massive revelation of anything approaching the Cuban Missile Crisis, the context that people are framing it as Quinta noted? No, it's it doesn't really seem to be to me. I think this is typical conduct that's problematic that we don't like, but is not unexpected from a regional rival like Cuba uh, and a major rival uh, nation worldwide like China. It's the exact sort of thing I think we would expect to happen. Frankly, we know China has an intelligence presence in Cuba because it came up repeatedly in the context of uh, you know Havana syndrome investigations, just as it did with Russia. That's why China and Russia were the two big suspects in that investigation for people who thought it was a result of state behaviors because they both have substantial intelligence presences in Cuba because of their mutual antagonism to the United States. So, uh, you know, I think the story people already need to take a deep breath about and we better to calm down about. But the political incentives are there. Instead, we're seeing people from both sides of the aisle on the Hill really get heated about this. And and I think that's unfortunate because I think it leads to less constructive diplomacy, um, which is actually what we need at this point, because we've had a freeze out in US-China diplomacy since the balloon incident at the beginning of this year. Uh, that looked like it's finally beginning to thaw. And this appears to be an effort to put it back on ice. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything Scott said, and I, I also thought the, the the Max Boot column was was useful, and I had very similar response of you know the, the idea that we'd be upset at this is is sort of absurd. To, to me, what's interesting about this is just what it shows about China's ambitions about projecting its influence sort of uh, 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 across the globe, and, and in particular, I think is just another useful data point when we try to think about what sort of major power, what sort of superpower China wants to be. You know, there are always sort of two schools, I think, two schools of thought about this. Sort of one school thinks that, you know, China wants to, you know, displace the United States as the world's great hegemon and spread its influence around the world. And, you know, so that we're all speaking Chinese and learning Xi Jinping thought in in 20 years. Um, and I think there's sort of the other side, which which takes a much more sort of uh, small C conservative view of of China and thinks, look, China is 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 a fundamentally an inward looking nation state that just wants to sort of secure its own borders and secure its own control uh, over its region and does not really have any expansionary or certainly not at this point revolutionary ambitions. Um, you know, nothing like the Soviet Union did. And you know, it's impossible to sort of answer that that question um, and to know, and in part also because it's a it's a moving target. Um, but what I do think this shows is that whatever your answer to that question is, right, even if you think that China's ambitions are fundamentally somewhat parochial, right, it just wants to be the hegemon in its traditional, you know, five thousand year civilizational sphere of influence in an interconnected world like ours. That does still require a relatively aggressive posture. With respect to you know not just things like access to resources, which is a lot of what the Belt and Road Initiative and a lot of what the inroads in Africa are for, um, but surveillance uh, and you know that surveillance is not just of its neighbors, right? Uh, in you know in in East Asia, uh, but also the United States, uh, and and that that you know can involve getting quite close to the you know the 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 mainland as as it were, and so I, I think it's, it's just it's just again a useful data point in terms of what the the Chinese threat looks like in in very practical uh in a very practical sense without necessarily having to take a kind of grand strategic theoretical vision on what china's you know 100 year civilizational plan is 
Well, we certainly will have more to hear about from this story, I think, um, certainly as this visit with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, moves forward this week. But we are actually very short on time here, so we'll have to cut short this topic a little bit um, in the interest of moving forward uh, with the rest of our days. But this would not be rational security if we did not have some object lessons to share with you in the week to come until we are back in your podcatcher. Quinta, why don't I turn it over to you to get us started? What do you have for us this week? Mixing up the usual order, throwing some curveballs. Surprise. I would like to recommend a new publication. Um, it is called Heat Map, and it is a new pub- online publication covering climate change, um, but not just, you know, sort of big questions about climate change, but also questions of what are we doing to try to prevent or limit it? Um, they have a lot on electric vehicles, for example, which I know nothing about, but which I know people care about. I had been aware of them for a little bit since they launched a couple months ago, but found them completely indispensable during the wildfire smoke last week um, when the air quality in D.C. and on the East Coast was just so unbelievably bad. Um, I think I, along with everyone else, uh, while I was stuck inside, did a lot of Googling on things like, how bad is smoke? Uh, you know, smoke, long-term effects. When is it safe to go outside? <laughs> Not Et cetera. Great. Exactly. And a lot of publications had things that were very sort of paint by numbers, which, you know, fair enough. But I felt like Heatmap really did, you know, went above and beyond in providing interesting information and interviews with folks who study smoke. They had an interesting sort of takeaway on what the hell happened recently by their executive editor, Robinson Meyer, making the argument that a lot of people just got this completely wrong and nobody foresaw it, which I thought was thought provoking. Um, So I am planning to subscribe um, and I would recommend it to anyone who is looking for thoughtful coverage on these issues because I, I found it extremely useful. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So I, I not only have an object lesson, but I have a segue from Quinta's brain candy to just candy candy. Uh, my object lesson is a box of just the tastiest Turkish delight that I have ever eaten, which granted for me is a fairly low bar. I, I was vaguely aware of Turkish delight from that time I read Narnia when I was eight. Uh, and then I tried it once and I think it was a bad Turkish delight. And it was also rose water flavored, which just to me always tastes like uh, perfume. I just do not like that traditional taste. But my parents were recently uh, recently visited and they had previously been in Istanbul and they brought us, uh, my wife and me, this this box of Turkish delight from this uh, company called Hazar Baba, uh, which I think is a traditional, I think it's like a century and a half old Turkish delight company. It is maybe the tastiest thing I've ever eaten. It's this like pomegranate and pistachio thing. It's it's so good. Like I, I have no words for how tasty. I had no idea that like what high quality Turkish delight tasted like, and it is superb. I, there, I have a link to. You know, they got they got it like at the. I guess Istanbul has like a Turkish delight market, so they got it there. But I think I think you can buy it online from this company. Uh, so I have dropped a. Uh, you know, we've put a link in the show notes. It's very expensive. Like this stuff is super super spendy. Um, but you know. Just just once you you deserve it to yourself to try top flight Turkish delight. It's so good. 
And then what's nice about it, it also, like, it's so dense, you eat it like these like tiny like millimeter cubes at a time. So it lasts, actually lasts for a really long time. You can't, you can't eat more than like a Jolly Rancher's worth in a sitting. Otherwise, you just feel terrible. Edmund would beg to differ. <laughs> I guess that's right. As I recall. Well, but you also have to make sure you try high, high quality Turkish baklava because it is Ooh, very Ooh, I haven't good. tried that, but I do like baklava. Yeah. But, but here, here's the thing. I feel like like even bad baklava, it's like it's pretty good, mm-hmm. right? And then you have a like really good mm-hmm. baklava. But bad Turkish delight is truly revolting, which is like yeah. why when you then try really good Turkish delight, it's completely mind-blowing how good it is. It's, I, I, did they get it from the Grand Bazaar? I, Sorry, I it think, was just I, in Turkey. I, I so. think, oh, yes, that's right. I, I think they did. I think they did. Super good. I will say as somebody who's been around the Middle East a lot, for baklava, you got to go to the active Arab countries. Arabs do baklava better. They will all agree on that. They'll dispute about which country you go to better. L- listeners, no. send, send your hate mail to at Scott Anderson on, on Twitter. It's true. No, but Scott, if you get it, like if you go to like Gaziantep in Turkey, which I mean, it's like right next to like, it's like there's so many Syrians and like, uh, like Iraqis who are in that area that it's like you, I mean, it's, it's, it's really good. Like, cause the, that the food is more like, it's yeah, it's it's more like it is in Arab countries, I think, in in the eastern part of Turkey, which is where I had the best baklava ever. So I saying. believe it, and I'm sure it's excellent. I'm telling you, you're going to offend an Arab if you, Arab folks if you're going to start talking about <laughs> Turkish baklava too, with two glowing terms. But the Turkish delights are amazing, and the presence of pistachio—that's like kind of the key element of both. Oh, if you want to find good of either, look for the pistachio present. That's like one of the key indicators, in my experience. Um, for my object lesson this week, I won't going to stay in the food domain because we are back in a farmer's market season finally once again. And I have been digging into a lot of my favorite seasonal dinners uh, and I stumbled across one that has gotten a bunch of play. And I'm just going to flag it for people because I think people are beginning to catch on. And I want to jump on this hype wagon. Uh, and that is for Larb. It's got a terrible name. Uh, it sounds not appealing, but absolutely delicious dish and a phenomenal farmer's market recipe. For those who don't know, this is like a Thai, can be served warm, can be served cold type of salad, usually made with meat. I'm a vegetarian, as folks know. I usually eat vegan. Yeah, so what, do you, what do you eat with it? I was going to ask. I find it phenomenal. I make it with tofu in the winter, which sure. is also which is pretty good. But uh, it's phenomenal with mushrooms. And if when you oh, go to the farmer's market yeah. these days and you can get like those big mixed packs of fresh different types of wild mushroom, you just shred those up and like do, cook them in a pan or throw them in the oven with hospital oil so they kind of brown up and use that as the base of your larb. And then you grab... You know, you can get everything you need at the farmer's market. You just need some mint. You need some cilantro. You need some basil. Get some green onions, throw them in there or some shallots. And it's phenomenal. Um, I grow it all, all that stuff in my garden. So I usually make just like whole garden except for the mushrooms. Show off. Uh, larbs for like most of the summer, but my garden's not quite there yet. Um, so in anticipation, I got all they make at the farmer's market. So I'll throw some links. There's a couple of recipes I really like. I'll try and uh, populate our show notes with uh, and throw in the Twitter thread um, because it's just a phenomenal springtime, summertime dish and people need to get on the wagon. So I'm glad uh, Washington Post and New York Times are starting to do it. Follow their lead. Can we buy you one of those... Um grow mushrooms in your basement kits and then you could really do i've like, had them the and i've tried and they're very hard but i really, really? would if That's i get an oyster mushroom one of those yeah. in a second i would do it um they're basically like big blocks of sawdust people grow them on exactly. so like it doesn't seem like it'd be that hard but i haven't been able to make it work well anna what do you have to bring us home with this week okay 
I have to admit, my the past like week has been so crazy with uh, the Trump news and and coming down to Miami that my object lesson is very sad, but it's all, it's also very good. So I, when we were stuck in the Willie D. Ferguson uh, federal courthouse in Miami from eight thirty a.m. to whenever Trump's arraignment ended on, uh, oh gosh, it was yesterday. Um, like I said, during our live stream, time has no meaning to me anymore. Um, but, um, when we were there, the, the one saving grace is that they had a, uh, cafeteria kind of coffee shop situation on the seventh floor of the courthouse. And I don't remember this gentleman's name, but the, the man who made the coffee there, he was so nice. And he was like, I know exactly what you need. You need a colada, which is a Cuban espresso drink that is like very slightly sweetened and has cinnamon in it. And this man made the best coffee. I think maybe it was just because I've been awake for like 24 hours straight at this point, but it was incredible. And so I am now a a firm believer that if you ever are in need to um, have some caffeine, you should choose a colada if you have, if you have the choice. So that's my object lesson. That's not sad at all. Yeah. You you don't know sad and object lessons. You didn't know that's heartwarming. A meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I meant sad. I meant sad in the sense that you know, recommending the uh, coffee on the seventh floor of the Miami Federal Courthouse is um, (laughs) guys. It's very simple. Just these these days, that could come in very handy for a lot of people. Extract documents and then lie about it. You too can end up at the seventh floor of the Miami Courthouse. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a couple of listeners will find that very handy at some point in the year to to come around Miami. But for now, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Go Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan, and we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Owl. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Anna Bauer, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.